My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Here we go. Life in a fast lane. My guest today knows all too much about the fast lane. As a matter of fact, he's a perfecter and creator and entrepreneur in the fast lane in the business of automobiles. Thomas Moorhead, thank you so much for making yourself available for, for this interview. I'm so delighted. I mean, as a young man, I've sort of followed your career and also having the pleasure of uh, sharing membership in the world's attorney with you. It's truly been a delight, and I'm glad to have you uh, here with us. If we can get right into it, would you take us back to Monroe, Louisiana, where it all began? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for allowing me to be a part of your program. And um, as I look back on what you call Monroe, Louisiana, for everybody that knows me, I generally say God's country. <laughs> and it's primarily because of obviously the way I was raised, which was by my grandfather and also by a minister who was my uncle, uh, along with my parents. But um, it was just for me growing up at a time when, you know, we didn't have anything and obviously being in a position that being very poor and, you know, I used to oftentimes would tell the story about. You know, I didn't really didn't have, you know, new clothes to wear. And the only time that I ever had an opportunity to receive anything was when my godmother would bring me something from the family that she worked for on the north side of Louise, uh, Monroe. And he would say, well, I've had enough of this. I don't want it anymore. And she'd say, well, I'll take it. So she would bring it home to me. And that, for me, was new clothes. So that worked out for many, many years, and it allowed me to get to a point where I was, felt like I was okay, and at least I was accepted because I looked like other kids. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, when you, you talk about being poor, and I happen to know your story, and I know, you know a bit about that. Can you paint a picture of what life was like for you know, living in Monroe, what kind of place it, you know, not a very large community. Can you share a little bit about the dynamics of growing up? Well, Monroe, you're absolutely right. Monroe was a fairly small community. Um, we used to call it the Twin Cities. That was Monroe and West Monroe. And Monroe was divided by what is called the Washita River and population of about 70,000. So a little bigger than some places, but not big enough to be called a big city. And, you know, we found ourselves in a situation where uh, being very poor, we grew everything. And as a result of that, I always felt like we ate well, but there were other things that we just did not have. So by not having those items, you know, our parents instilled in us the fact that no matter what we did or where we went, we had to make sure that we looked the best that we could look. So much so that as I thought back um, about my mom used to say, she was gonna get those blue jeans and put starch in them. And I had to learn how to iron them, both shirts and pants, to make sure that there was a crease in my pants when I walked out that door every day. Mm -hmm. 
but it was that pride that she had with whatever you have, make it the best that it can be. And that's kind of how I was brought up, you know, and to this day, I'm still that way. And so uh, going from, uh, tell us a bit about your high school years and what the transition from that was uh, like before you uh, wound up um, attending college. Well, high school for me was um, probably one of my better periods. And, and I say that because we had a principal that we called Morris Henry Carroll, and he was just a pioneer and an individual who had a radio program and who taught us that everything was possible. And he made it clear to us that as young men and women in his school, that there would be no foolishness, as he would always say. We had to toe the line in every aspect of our lives. All of the teachers at the school they were considered to be our parents as well. So if we didn't do what we should have done, okay, they would take care of us. And by the time we got home, that would be a note that my parents would have, and they would also take care of us again. So it was those kinds of things that I would say in high school, having a principal and teachers like him, and for those teachers, who really truly cared about us, they made the difference in our lives more than anything else. So when you're, um, you're wrapping up high school, I don't know, did you play any sports in high school? Or Yes, I did. Um, I was uh, played football. I was on the gymnastics team, hmm. played little tennis. Um, and as a young man that, uh, went to school with by the name of James Harris. And James was, gosh, the first African-American to ever start in the NFL. And James actually started uh, and played behind me in high school. So we actually had a lot of great athletes who came out of Monroe, Louisiana, um, some of whom... Uh, you know, I could name, you know, Willis Reed and, and um, Bill Russell, and James Harris. And it, it, it just, it was just an area that that's all we could produce at the time was really great athletes. And for me, being small in stature, I just said, I don't think I can make it in football. So... I need to look at something else. And that something else for me was going into business. And for me, that was my ticket, as I said, was going to be the way that I would get out of the community that I was in. So I went on to Ramblin State University and majored in business. And the rest is pretty much history after that. Yeah. Well, what's the experience like at Grambling? Well, the experience at Grambling was really good because when I got to Grambling, of course, my parents um, didn't have any money to send me to school, but they scraped together every dime that they could get. And I had to work every summer 
And then on the weekends, I would go home and work on the weekends mm. to make sure I had enough money to go back to, uh, to be able to eat at night and to do whatever I needed to do just to be successful. So I, I will say from a sports perspective, I actually went on and I played tennis at Grambling because by the time I got to Grambling, I was so beat up from football that I just couldn't play. And after I recuperated from, you know, uh, some injuries that I had, I went out for the tennis team and also the gymnastics team and was fortunate enough to be able to get a partial scholarship there that helped me to take some of that burden off of my parents. And that's how I made it through Grambling. So you said you saw business as your ticket out were there entrepreneurs that you were around growing up or, or how did you determine that business was, was that ticket? Yes. In Monroe, there were three individuals, one of whom was the pharmacist in my community and just a great guy. And I saw him as being a business person that I just was not expecting. And then there was a dentist in the community who was just outstanding as well. Those two individuals said to me that, one, first time I looked at it, I said, boy, I really wanna be, be a pharmacist. But then as I got to know the dentist very well, I, you know, I said to myself, gosh, maybe I should be a dentist but I knew it wasn't what I really wanted to do. So I wanted to go in business, but I just didn't know what area I wanted to go into. And I knew that once I got to Grambling, that it would give me an opportunity to really take a look and see. So I said, let me equip myself with the skills necessary to move forward. So I actually majored in business. Um, with a concentration in econ and accounting. And as a result of that, I tried to do everything that I could. And during that time, we really started to play with computers. And I worked in the computer lab there at Grambling for many, many years. In fact, three years or four years that I was there. And for me, that was so fascinating. But all I was really doing was programming little widgets on a board <laughs> and filing and shuffling cards and trying to write programs. But it did give me some skill sets that I needed to perhaps move forward going into the future from a business perspective. But my grandfather said to me, he said, son, we have no money. We would really like to see you go to ground get a degree in education, come back and teach. And perhaps one day you could be like Mr. Henry Carroll, who's principal of our school. Well, I knew then that that wasn't for me. And I kept saying to him, I said, granddaddy, that's just not for me. And he said, well, son, since you seem to want to do this, let me tell you what I, I think you should do. If you're gonna go into business, you need to sell something that people have to have. And the three things they have to have is one, food, a place to sleep, 
and cars to drive. So if you can get into business and work in any of those areas, you will probably be able to make a small living. Well, that was 100, I want to say 137 in my graduating class out of high school. There were two of us that chose to go into business. One young man by the name of Morris Davis ended up going into uh, McDonald's franchise. He ended up with four, yeah, I think it's four or five McDonald's franchises. And he just recently retired a couple of years ago, lives in Detroit. And then I went to school. Well, actually, when I left Gramlin, I went to Detroit, spent some time in Detroit, being around the auto industry. Um, and, when I, you know, I was like fascinated by the auto industry and had an opportunity to um, to look at the auto industry from perspective of having a fraternity brother who said to me, young man, I have watched you over the years and I'd like to have you come and look at the auto industry. Well, at that time, I was working on my, I uh, just completed my master's at Michigan and I was working on a PhD in urban and regional planning. And I just said to Mr. Bradley, I said, Mr. B, I love you dearly. I said, but I'm gonna have to get this degree done. I won't be able to go back to Monroe. At least I can say that I have a PhD. I've gotten it done. Now I'm gonna pursue what I really want and that is business. So what he said was, well, let me teach you the business side of it. And I'd like to have you look at the car business. And I said, oh no, that won't work. I said, because one, I don't like the image of car salesmen, okay, car people. I, I say what they reflect to me is plaid jacket, stretch knit pants, smoking cigarettes and talking fast. And he said, now wait a minute now. Uh, let's do something here. He said, I want you to go over to Detroit. I want you to visit the following dealerships. And then let's talk about them after you get back. And I said, okay. Went over, had an opportunity to visit those dealerships. When I got back, he said, what do you think? I said, Mr. B, I was so impressed. I said, I thought I was on Wall Street. I saw a young man there with nice bow ties on and nice ties and suits. I said, they really look great. Didn't see anybody that looked like me though. But you could obviously see the business nature and then the cars were just so fascinating, okay? Having an opportunity to sell automobiles made a lot of sense to me. But it just wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I, I guess I was caught up in that whole thing about how people perceive car salesmen. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, let's talk about it. After about 10 different meetings, he finally said to me, uh, let me show you my financial statement. Let's take a block of time. So we looked at 10 years of his financial statement. And in looking at those 10 years, I could obviously see the cyclical nature of the business. There were times when 
you would have five, six, maybe seven years of really great business. And then you would drop off in about three years, you find yourself scuffling and just trying to make ends meet to stay in business. And that just wasn't appealing to me. And he said, well, it's the nature of the business, but let's look at what you can make in this business. He said, if you allow me to teach you this business, in five years, you'll be a millionaire. Well, I stood up and said, be a millionaire? Well, you know, for me, it sounded good, but it really got my attention. So he said, now, what I want you to understand is that you need to really learn this business. I said, well, now, what does that really mean? Because I got to go and talk to my wife about this. I was two courses short of the PhD and the dissertation. So I knew that I was so close to that, first of all, that goal of getting a PhD that I just did not want to give that up. And he said, um, how much money are you going to make with that PhD? I said, Mr. B, it's not the money. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's always the money. And I said, well, I guess in some ways you're right. I said, but I, I'm sure I'll probably end up making sixty dollars to $70,000 a year. And he said, son, that's not any money. And he says, in showing you the statement here, you can see the kind of money that you truly can make. So he said, you have to decide. And I said, well, all right, let me talk to my wife. To make a long story short, I went back and I said to him, I think I'm going to give this a try. And he said, um, okay. I said, so what department do you want me to run? What will I manage? And he said, first of all, you can't manage what you don't know. I said, well, then what, what do you want me to do? He said, well, come in let me teach you the business. And I'm going to start you off for one year and I'm going to put you in sales. And I said, oh, my gosh in sales and he said yeah he said but the problem you're going to have is all of your colleagues at the university of michigan are going to come in here buying cars bringing the cars in for service because we were in ann arbor michigan and he said everybody's going to want to know what's wrong with tom can you handle that and i said of course i can well you know he says you're taking a step back what that really taught me, that if you want something bad enough, that you're willing to take a step back in order to make a step forward, that you truly can't make a mistake along the way. So I sold cars for the first year. But before I went out, I said to him, I said, tell me, who's the best salesman that you have? And he said, well, why do you want to know? I said, I, I just need to know. And he says, that young man is out there on the lot. He sells about 33 cars a month. He grosses about X. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, if I came to, you know, in here and started, if I would come in here and start working for you, I'm going to beat that young fellow out there on the lot. I'm going to be your best salesman. And he said, oh, sure. He said, just learn the business. And that's how I got started in the car business. 
So, you know, a couple of fascinating observations about, you know, how your story sort of unfold. And one, uh, you, you started out with business in mind, but you sort of taken a, a detour because you got your master's degree prior to pursuing your PhD, but you were still committed, so, you know, to pursuing business because that was what you sought out, you know, set out to do. So I think that's important. And then two, it's interesting to have you talk about uh, your hesitation because of people's perceptions. And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs are faced with that very issue when they want to take a risk, uh, a step out. That's true. Folks who don't have people in their families who've been entrepreneurs, you know, raising in the sun. That play comes to mind when you think about the son who decides, hey, father left some money. I'm going to go try to make it out on my own. Uh, so those are some important pieces. But then this Mr. Bradley took an interest in you, but not only took an interest, he took the time and was compelled enough to want to spend the time essentially almost convincing you that, hey, son, this is what you really want to do. So, can you, you know, can you just talk about how important those you know, a confluence of those things were being, you know, you talk about the need to be persistent in pursuing that big goal, which was business. You also had the hesitation because of perception, but yet it was this um, uh, persistent figure who was determined to help you be successful. So I just think that those are some important pieces, you know, and sort of how the story comes together. So any thoughts you have about that? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, Mr. Bradley was a, a real pioneer. He was a fraternity brother and one of three individuals that started in the industry. Went to uh, Michigan State, got a degree in accounting, and worked in the accounting department at General Motors. And as he looked at financial statements that was coming across his desk, he decided that he wanted to own a dealership. And he was one of three individuals that got a dealership. So I had a role model who was a fraternity brother and who was willing to teach me the business. And as a result of that, that was probably the biggest helped me make the biggest decision in my life to make that move to really start out and let him teach me the business. And the way we did that was, that was a program that GM had at that time. They were just starting it and it was called an in-house dealership training program. There were about a little over 300 individuals who applied for the program and they selected six individuals to pilot this program. And of the six they selected, uh, I happened to be part of those, that group, and I was the first graduate out of that program. So when they started classes for the program, um, it was going to class, learning the business from a theor uh, theoretical perspective, but in my case, I had to learn it on the job. Right. I had to take the same exam, which was 64 essay, essay questions, on each one of the modules that was required. 
and you had to score in the 90 percent child in order to pass each one of those and there were three exams so i said well this should be easy to do i said because if i'm learning on the job you know i can write okay i should be able to answer the questions and get through this program so i started out actually selling cars and i did that for the first year and at the end of that year I went to Mr. Bradley and I said, I really enjoyed this and I like it to the degree that I really would like to go ahead and get into the program. And he said, I don't think you're ready yet. I think you should come and back and let's work one more year and I want you to do the following. And I was like, oh no, this is not gonna work for me. And he said, well, I just got the Cadillac franchise. I'd like for you to take over the Cadillac franchise and manage that for me. And then he assigned me to another individual who worked at General Motors, who was also a fraternity brother, who actually taught me the business from a corporate perspective. And having a combination of those two capital men, okay, that worked with me to teach me the business was really what I said was probably the true foundation that I got to be successful. Uh, in fact, one day what I said to him was, Mr. B, how do I ever repay you for what you've done? And he said, young man, the way you repay me is I want you to reach back and grab another young man or young lady and bring them along and pay it forward. And he said, that's gonna be a part of your black tax. That's how you repay me to help them be successful as well. And that's how I really got started. I got into the program. I, grad I was the first graduate out of the program, did really well on the exams, obviously. And as a result of that, I uh, started out and I had to go out and get a dealership. Well. Getting a dealership was pretty tough. Uh, and it was tough because I had to do so many things to prepare myself to be able to perform at that level. And the biggest problem I had was, you know, overcoming everybody saying, you're not going to make it. and This isn't going to happen. You're giving up all of your schooling at Michigan. And, and I said, if, if Mr. Bradley was able to do it, along with his cohort, I can do it as well. But having good mentors really helped me to move to the level that I did. Um, I wanna tell you about some of the things I had to do with Mr. Bradley. After being in sales, my next job there was working in the parts department. And he said to me, he said, I want you to go to the parts department next week so Monday morning when you come in, you know, I want you to put on the white shirt and your blue pants and work in the parts department. I said, okay. So I walked in the parts department and when I reported, the young lady gave me a rag and told me to stock the shelves. And I said, wait a minute, stock the shelves? And she said, yes. So you, first of all, you got to learn about parts. And I went in cleaning and stocking the shelves 
taught me about the whole process and things that I had to learn there. When I finished that, I went to the body shop and worked in the body shop. And when I finished in the body shop, the next stop was to work in the office. So after working in the office, what he was really trying to get me to see, you have to make the journeys in all of the various departments to understand how it comes together in the office as you bring everything to some degree of closure. And by doing that, it allowed me to understand the business and put myself in a position, as he would always say, if you know every aspect of your business, you will never be held hostage by any one individual. And if you have to let someone go, you should be able to step in and do that job. And that's really what happened. And that for me has always been the way that I learned every aspect of the car business and all the other things that I actually had to do in life. Yeah. So you, you've gone from, you know, really starting and learning the basics. You were able to take the course, get through all 64 modules, you graduated, and then you've gone through really learning. Uh, and I'm so glad you made that point about the importance of learning every aspect of your business. It's such a prized uh, knowledge base that I think oftentimes, you know, we can get, you know, people who go into business want to have staff and they think being a boss is delegating but it's so, you know, essential that you know the business so that when things break or when things are being run inefficiently, you perhaps have some perspective of, hey, here's how we might course correct. But after you've done all that, now you've got to go try to get your own dealership. What did that require? How long did it take? And how did you put the financing together? Well, the way I did the financing part of it was, first of all, in order to get into the program, at that time, you had to have 65,000 unencumbered funds. And of course, not having those funds, I was truly in a situation where I couldn't go to my parents to say, and my grandfather to say, I need to borrow, because they didn't have it. But while I was working, Mr. Bradley said to me, when you come in here, I want you to start saving every penny and start trying to accumulate the dollars that you need. So by the time I bought a house, my first house, and I started putting, I'd go to work with Mr. Bradley's during the day, I'd go home and I'd put sweat equity into my own and I would do everything that I could to this little house that I was in. And I just kept building it up, building it up and adding little things to it. Uh, and when I got ready to, to uh, go into uh, the dealership, I sold the house. I was able to take the funds from the house, the funds that I had saved and pull together enough money. And along the way, uh, I did have to borrow a few dollars uh, from individuals, but that allowed me to have the funds necessary. My first store cost me, in terms of my equity, about $140,000 mm -hmm. to get started. And that hundred and forty certainly gave me an opportunity to buy my first store that was in Omaha, Nebraska. 
And when I got ready to go to look at that store, Mr. Bradley went along with me. And we were sitting there and we were waiting to see the zone manager the next morning. And we ended up going to sleep, I thought, that night. And I felt like we were prepared for it. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked over and I looked for Mr. Bradley and he wasn't in, in bed. And I walked out into the next room and he was sitting there and he had his, you know, he was an accountant by training. So he was there and he was just going over the numbers. And I said to him, I said, Mr. B, what are you doing? He said, well, I was just concerned about this and I was concerned about that. So three o'clock in the morning, when we finished and we walked into the zone manager's office, there was nothing he could ask us about that opportunity that I couldn't answer. I knew everything about how the guy made his money, where the opportunities were, and some of the strengths and weaknesses of what he was doing. And that allowed me to really make a decision and a more informed decision about that as being my first opportunity. And that store was actually a store that was uh, run and owned by an African-American gentleman who chose to leave that store and go to a store in California. And as a result of that, I spent nine years in that store and did the best job that I could do. And what I was trying to do was to identify what's going to make me stand out from everybody in that city. Being the first African-American in Omaha, Nebraska to own a car dealership after the gentleman uh, uh, that had it before, I knew that I had to perform even better than he performed in order to go to the next level. And I was all about achieving, trying so to get you, to the next level. So you had to move down from Detroit, I mean, from Ann Arbor, Michigan, in Omaha, Nebraska for this opportunity. Yes. And moving into Omaha, of course, um, not a big minority population. And in fact, the whole state of Nebraska was about 1.6 million people. Okay. And minorities comprised about 4% of the population there. But it was really a great town and a great place to have a business. And that's where I cut my teeth on learning the business and really having my first store. And I bought my second store in Decatur, Illinois. And I bought that store primarily because of a friend who was dying of cancer. Mm. And he called me one day and said, uh, I'd like for you to buy my store. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I have cancer and I know they aren't going to do right by my wife and as a result of that i'd really like to have you buy the store buy the land and make sure she's okay so if i can ask before you get deep on the decatur store how long was it from you starting the process to being able to finally buy that omaha nebraska i know you said you had gone through the school uh gone through courses worked for mr bradley a couple of years i'm just trying to get a sense of how many years that took before you could land on that store it took me four years okay well for, for a program that was supposed to be one year 
okay uh and it it just took me a total from the time i started the program to the time i got my first store to the date almost it was four years and that was because not because i couldn't have gone into the program earlier but mr bradley just kept saying to me i really want you to truly understand every aspect of the business so when you do go in that you stay in and do a good job now one of the things that that happened very early on is we've got we actually ended up with some of the worst dealerships we as minorities when we started we ended up buying stores from individuals who did not do a good job in that store stores were not making money and we bought those stores from general motors and the dealer it gave them an opportunity to get a retirement fund and they put that retirement burden on our backs. So not only did we have to take a underperforming store, we had to take that store and make it a performing store. So as I always tell individuals who look at me today, I always say, you know, for every, for every successful Tom Moorhead, there are a lot of headstones behind me. Mm. And I was really trying to say to them that, you know, if you don't make it and you end up losing, okay, it's hard to get back into the system. So you really have to just take advantage of every opportunity that you get. So buying the right store was the first thing. And then secondly, making sure that you could run that store and run it well. And when I started in the store, the one thing I said to my staff was that we won't be the cheapest store, we won't be the most expensive store, but what we will be is the best service component that they will ever come in contact with in the automobile industry. So we built our store based on service. And that is to say all of the little things that we had to do to make sure that we were successful had to be done based on being the best service component in all of the store. If you, as an individual in Omaha, Nebraska, would go to a service station in our community and you'd say, I'm looking for Century Buick, which was the store in the name of the store that I am, and tell me something about that store which you would probably hear would be, uh, they're located at 114th and Dodge. Well, tell me about the store. You know anything about it? You probably get a guy who would say, best service department in town. Mm -hmm. And by that was what we tried to build as a foundation. And what happened to me in that uh, situation was, uh, it was a country club there. They didn't have any of us at the country club of course but i had the president of the country club call me one day he was on his way out of town had a riviera that he needed service on and his wife the car broke down on his wife he called me and i said to him don't worry about it we'll take care of her 
We sent somebody out. We picked up her car, gave her a car to drive, serviced her car, washed it, filled it with gas, took it back to her, picked up our car. By the time he came back, you know, he came out to see me and he said, young man, thank you so much for taking care of my wife. As a result of that, he started sending us more customers from the country club. That really kind of helped us. So another thing that I guess that, that I found that was really funny was uh, one afternoon, one Saturday afternoon, one of my salesmen was working on trying to sell a car and the lady um, said, you know, she would come back on Monday. So he came to me and he said, everybody's gone. This lady wants to buy a car today. I said, will you go sell the car and I'll get it cleaned up? And she said, so he said, okay. So I went out back, I washed the car, cleaned it up. She came out and she said, young man, uh, would you get that spot for me over there? And there's another one over there. And I said, yes, ma'am. So I hit all the spots she told me to get. So she went back inside. She said to the salesman, she said, here's $5. Give that to that young man out there. <laughs> and she said, and the young man told her, said, ma'am, he won't take it. And she said, what do you mean? It's not enough? And <laughs> she said, no. He said, no. He said, uh, that's the owner. She said, no. That's the owner washing the car. She went to school the next uh, the next day, and she was sitting in the teacher's lounge, and she told the story. They called the newspaper. Mm -hmm. The newspaper came out and did an interview with me. And when they did the interview, in the interview, the guy said, "You washed the lady's car." I said, "Absolutely." I said because. The boss in our store is Mr. And Mrs. Customer who walks across that, that threshold. Without them, we might as well lock our doors. Mm -hmm. So I can't do anything until I sell a car. Can't sell parts, can't sell another one, okay? So I have to sell that car. So not having anybody there to do it, I had to do it myself. As a result of that, I started getting people coming to the store and they would say things like, I will buy a car from you if you clean my car. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> so, you know, when I started having stories that was written about me in terms of the things that I had to do in order to be successful, it just started to help to build my legacy and how I started. Yeah. And that's what took me to the next level and the next store. And that's really what it was. So let's come back to your friend who's unfortunately afflicted with cancer and calls you and has concluded they're not going to do right by his wife. And so if you pick up the story from there. I, um, I, I, I told him, I said, okay, I'll buy the store. But it was in Decatur, Illinois. And Decatur was a very, very small town. And I knew that it was going to be tough on me in that town. But I wanted to help Ed in any way I could. So <laughs> my son, you know, we were getting up on Sunday morning to go to church. And, you know, I, I was looking for a church that had 
an eight o'clock service. And the reason being is that I was brought up by a minister and he said to me, he says, on Sunday morning, I want to see, I expect you to be in somebody's church every Sunday morning. And as a result of that, I ended up um, saying to my son, let's go find that church. But in the course of trying to find that church, uh, we got to the church. Can you hold on just one second? Sure. All right. I had some workers that were here. Yeah. And they were doing something that had caused me to do that. So hopefully. No problem. I was able to pause that, so no worries at all. Okay. So, you know, when we got to the church, um, my son said, Dad, this is a white church. And I said, Son, it's the only one that has early morning services. So we're going. It's a white Baptist church. So we went to the church. We walked in with a couple other African-American uh, persons in, this, in the church. But that Monday, I had some of those individuals who was in church stopped at the store. Mm -hmm. They told my staff that my son along with his dad, he says that young man along with his dad came to visit our, our church yesterday and uh, we thought we would come over and look at a car. And as a result of that, I started getting more church people coming mm -hmm. and it allowed me to, one, get a foothold into the community in a way that I hadn't been able to get before. And so I continued to go to the church and I finally had customers coming saying, I know Mr. Moorhead, can I set up an account? <laughs> and in some, in some ways I felt like, okay, I, I would do that. So I started setting up a little account for and they paid. And as a result of that, it allowed my business to really grow. So, so you moved it, from Omaha to the- I still had the store in Omaha. Okay. And then I also had the store in Decatur, Illinois. I sold the store in Omaha, and I sold the one in Decatur, Illinois, okay. and built the BMW store in Sterling, Virginia. In Sterling. But that in that time, good. were you shuttling between Omaha and Decatur, or did you yes, like Yes, I was. Wow. I was shuttling between the two, and it was, I was doing everything I could to just try to hold both of them together. Mm -hmm. And I spent a great deal of time um, trying to get into the foreign car segment. And BMW, uh, Lexus, Mercedes-Benz was an area that just didn't have people that looked like us. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, um, that's an area I certainly would like to get in. And the biggest thing for me was convincing them that not only could we provide great customer service, Okay, we could we could provide we could sell the product and we could service the product, and that's what they were concerned about. So I pulled together every article that had been written, provided for them all of the information on the things that I did that made me successful, and when 
BMW was asking for my business plan, I went over and above and I provided for them as the head of dealer development said in a meeting that was being conducted when they were looking for people who wanted to be BMW dealers. There was a question that said, um, how do you become a BMW dealer? And the head of the program said, there's a young man sitting in this room, I won't call his name, but when he applied for the franchise, you know, we have gotten half page letters, a page and a half letters, asking about a dealership opportunity. When this young man applied, he gave us three binders and two, look almost like milk crates, of ideas of how he could make the BMW business a success. And as a result of that, we gave him an opportunity and he is doing very well. So that's how I got started. But it was going that extra mile, yeah. doing the things that they didn't expect and making sure that my proposal was the best proposal that they were going to see. And that's what really got me started. So when you had to buy the Decatur store, I assume, you know, that needed to be financed. How did you finance that and then subsequently the BMW franchise? The Decatur store, you have to write. One of the things I did, I went to financial services for uh, General Motors. And I had a track record for my first store that was financed by General Motors. So taking the opportunity to go back to them the second time, along with uh, taking all of my financials to the local bank there in town, and because I was selling the product that I was selling, which also had BMW as a part of it, okay, I was approved from, the, from day one. And that's what got me started. And it gave me an opportunity to go on and build my BMW store, make enough money to build my BMW store in Sterling, Virginia. So on the day you got your approval, what was the feeling that came over you? Oh, wow. I, uh, my wife, uh, Joyce, at that time, um, we had been talking about it and I had been out looking for an opportunity where I could, one, put the store, needed to buy some land and everything. And I finally got the letter of intent from BMW. And we stopped, my wife is so religious that we stopped. And whenever we had a milestone that we would, would hit, you know, she would always say, honey, come on, let's pray. And we would sit down and we would really pray. And getting a foreign car franchise like BMW was kind of like getting over the mountaintop or getting to the top of the mountain. Uh, and just a small um, statement about that. Uh, 
when I got my first store in Omaha, Nebraska, I used to send Mr. I sent to Mr. Bradley my financial statement every month. And Mr. Bradley would look at my financial statement and sometimes he would call me and he said, boy, why did you do that? Oh boy, how did you do that? So he would critique it for me. So every month for 17 years, he looked at my financial statement. When I got my BMW store and I sent it to him, he called me and he said, boy, I see why they never let us have a BMW store or a Mercedes store. Because he had never seen a financial statement that looked like that one where we had a really good month. Yeah. So uh, it was really gratifying and truly something that not only made us feel good, but made him feel good about the job that we had done. So by the time you have dealers, two dealerships, most people would say, oh, Tom Moorhead is a successful car dealer. Motivation to keep yearning for more to where you set your sights and determine that, hey, that next level for me needs to be having a foreign car brand dealership. You know, I really looked at... Um, Earl Graves had such an influence on all of us. Mm. Um, Who was the founder of Black Enterprise Magazine. Absolutely. Um, Had just such an influence because he would do the top 100 in various fields in his magazine. And, you know, everybody would look every year around June, and that would be kind of like the Bible. If you went up in this top 100, you were a real success. If you went down, everybody would say, oh my God, he's going out of business. So having an opportunity to be in the magazine, uh, that really for me and for all of us, just got to be kind of our benchmark. So I started looking at it and I said, now of the 100 of us, who are fortunate enough to make a spot on this uh, list, um, how do you break out of that? What is it you can do to kind of move to the next level? Well, I looked around at that list and all of the stores and the dealerships, as we call them, uh, there was nothing there or no one who really had a foreign franchise. And so I said to myself, I really would like to have us look at a foreign car franchise and see if we can break into those ranks. So we started what we call NAMAD, which was the National Association of Minority Automobile Dealers. And when we started NAMAD, we started meeting with all of the manufacturers and tried to push them to give us more opportunity. In the course of doing that, uh, we start knocking on the doors of the foreign car franchises. And the president of then BMW had a white South African who ran the company. And he committed to giving us 10 franchises 
And he said, I will commit to 10 franchises and three of them you're going to have to build from ground up. And then seven you're going to have to buy. So they did a study and determined where they would put those three that they were going to build. And one was in Atlanta, and Hank Aaron was the recipient of that particular franchise. The other one was in Modesto, California, and Ed Fitzpatrick, a good friend of ours, uh, bought that franchise, got that one. And I got the one in Sterling, Virginia. So when we actually got the letter of intent for those franchises, we all were just so excited. And that's how we got started into that business. Now, it's so funny because I can say this now, but BMW's board said to the president at that time, what is this thing about diversity? And why is it that we, we have to even consider this because for every BMW we make, we're selling them. So why should we consider 10 franchises for minority dealers? And they really truly did not understand the business model and how it worked here in the U.S. And of course, the, the gentleman who was the president did everything he could to educate them. And when he started trying to pick 10 of us, he said, you guys cannot fail. You have to be successful. So taking us through the process of vetting us for a dealership, they were looking for, at that time, as they said, the best of the best. So taking those crates when I applied and going the extra mile when we applied, okay, were the kinds of things that they were looking for, and those were the kinds of things that allowed us and certainly for me to get my foot in the door. Once I got in. And what year was that out, that you got in, by the way? What year did you get in? I got my BMW store in 1998. And I got the letter of intent in 1998. And we actually had to buy the land, build a building. Mm. And we actually opened the doors in uh, January of 2001. So that, that's when it was. My wife was trying to correct me in the background. <laughs> I, on the I know it all too well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, being the lawyer that she is, of course, <laughs> she's always there to say, honey, it was X. And I'm like, I understand. But that's, that's really what happened and allowed us to, to be where we are. Um, once I was able to at least get the BMW franchise, um, it actually opened the doors to the other franchises that we ended up getting. Yeah. And probably one of the toughest ones was the uh, Harley-Davidson franchise that I got um, for many, many years because Hank Aaron and I applied for the franchise together. Mm. And they wouldn't give us one because one of us had to be on site and we had to be a rider. And Karen didn't ride, nor did I. And so that was a major problem. And we got turned down. But later on, we were able to uh, to make it happen when Bob Johnson got, 
got a franchise, they came back to me and said, we're going to give Mr. Johnson a Harley franchise, and you applied for one many, many years ago, you and Mr. Aaron. So if you all are interested, we can certainly look at that now, and that's how we ended up. Uh, I ended up going and getting a Harley franchise at a much later period in life. Right. Right. So you have your Sterling Virginia dealership. And now you're running a BMW dealership. What were some of the different adjustments you had to make and how did you help that uh, store thrive? You know, the one problem I, I guess for me uh, was making the transition from the domestic side to the luxury side. It was more or less about what do we have to do to distinguish ourselves because being in the in the um, Washington metro area, uh, Washington metro was fairly affluent. A lot of big dealerships in the marketplace, and here comes a young fellow who's just starting out. Okay, coming from a domestic environment into this particular environment, uh, it was probably the toughest thing that I ever had to do. So. What I started out doing was saying, let's find the land. When we found the land and started building the product, the, the uh, project, the biggest problem I had was they gave me a spot and the only place that I could build a dealership was on a piece of land that was sitting on a dead end street. I sat on that dead end street for nine years. And when I bought the land, they said to me that in a couple of years, we're gonna open the road up in front of you. Well, the only thing that was out there at that time was a Burger King. And there was a um, Walmart that was out in the area, but the Walmart went out of business. So everybody said to me, why would you want to go out there? It's in the woods. It's on a dead end street. Walmart went out of business and the only thing that's out there is a Burger King. Well, I didn't have any choice. You know, if I wanted the opportunity and Urban Science, who picked that particular location, said that in three to four years, the area was going to blossom. And I was like, if they made a mistake, I'm doomed. As it turned out, Loudoun County, Virginia, now is comprised, now it has 72% of the cloud business in the world in that county. Loudoun County is the richest county in America, and it is adjacent to the second richest county, which is Fairfax, Virginia. So, I got on my knees and said to the good Lord above, after nine years of sitting here on a dead end, doing everything that I could to sell BMWs, they finally opened the road up. And I was actually wildly successful, okay? And as a result of that, the other franchises that I now presently have started to come along. Yeah. And I took advantage of those as well. So sometimes, I guess, when I look back at it, sometimes taking some of those risks 
pay, well, in this case, they certainly paid off, but you have to really look at and investigate every aspect of the business. You got to look at what do you think is going to be the best opportunity and how can you max out on that opportunity in a way that it's going to be good for you and your business. We started out with 27 employees. I think today we're probably just a little under 200. We've been at some point in time, we were over 200. Uh, but we've grown and grown in a way now that it has worked out very well. So we've been truly blessed. So you've been a newsmaker for quite a while. And I know through the 2000s, that's when I became uh, aware of uh, your story. and Well, more so your success rather than your story. Uh, then you made some more news in 2013 as you brought on some new franchises. How did those uh, come about? Well, I, when I got the, the BMW franchise, the Rolls Royce franchise was available. And since it was available, I applied for it. And what happened was, they said to me, you can't get a Rolls Royce franchise. Uh, be satisfied with the BMW franchise. And so I said, well, why not? They actually gave that franchise to the white dealer in D.C. And to be honest with you, when I had an opportunity to look at it for a second time, and the only reason I had an opportunity to look at it for the second time, the dealer who had it in D.C. didn't do a good job with it. I didn't have a track record, okay, of being able to sell high-end luxury cars, okay? So what I ended up having to do was to convince them with all that I had done that I could sell that brand and I could sell it better than any other Rolls-Royce dealer in the world. And they said, okay, we're going to give you a chance. It took me a while, okay, to finally get it off the ground. It just, it, 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 those were some trying times because to have somebody walking in looking to purchase a car that's 400000 to $1.3 million, okay, meant that I had to go out and hire different kinds of salespersons. I had to learn the crap, my crap all over again to figure out the best way to even get them in the door. And as time went on, there were other franchises that became available, and every time one of them would, be, would come out, I would reply again. So I applied for the next franchise was Lamborghini. And I, based on the job that we had done with BMW, Rolls-Royce, I said, hey, I'd like to try at Lamborghini. And as a result of trying with Lamborghini, when I got that franchise, having both of them meant that the next franchise, which was McLaren that came along, I applied for it as well. So by continuously asking for 
each of those franchises and getting them, I started getting more customers coming through my door, either looking for either Lamborghini, McLaren, or Rolls Royce. It just started a better traffic pattern. Yeah. So then I started moving people from from uh, BMW to Rolls Royce to Lamborghini to McLaren and from many. And that's what made the difference and kind of pushed me to where I am today. Yeah, so I have to just ask, why did you have a BMW deal? You've already set the benchmark. For most people, they would say, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll try to get another BMW dealership and that'd be it for me. I'm going to just try to, you know, run what I've got and then maybe do some things on the side. But I keep coming back to this thought of... Well, you know, going back to the point that I was trying to make about Earl Graves and Black Enterprise, what that said to me was I had to keep looking for ways of building the brand and keep trying to get to a point where those things that everybody says you can't do mm. well if you don't believe you can do it you you certainly can't do it because you never get an opportunity to try it and what i was looking at certainly for the mid-atlantic region i was trying to make sure that i control the luxury and exotic market for the mid-Atlantic region. And that region was from starting down in the Carolinas, going up to Pennsylvania, over to Chicago, St. Louis, back to Atlanta. You know, controlling that entire area would help to ensure our success. And I wanted to make sure if you were going to buy or service those brands, you had to come to us, which meant that we had to be the best that we could be in order to be able to control that geographical region. So I was looking for, and I actually turned down, you know, Maserati, uh, some other franchises that I could have added because I didn't think that it would fit the business plan. Mm -hmm. See, sometimes you have to be careful that you don't end up um, taking on something just for the sake of having it if it doesn't fit your business plan. You've got to know really what it is you're doing, where you want to go, and the kind of pieces that's it's going to take to help you to kind of mold and bring all of the brands together. The other one for me that I, that I didn't acquire, that I really wanted, was Ferrari. And everybody says that it's, it's, it's like the coveted franchise. And, you know, you'll never get that. And if you told me it was something that I couldn't... I couldn't obtain, and I can't get it, or you'll never do it, you know, that would fuel me inside to say, I don't believe that. So let me keep trying, okay, to see if I can get there. And, I, and that's pretty much how I have approached most things in life. 
you know, I can go down the same path with everybody else, or I can venture out a little bit and try and bring everything together that I want that allows us to achieve the goal that I really want. And so getting like-minded individuals to be around you and to help you with the same goals in mind is really what I think has been um, very good for us. And the other thing that more than anything else for me is finding individuals who look like me. You know, um, I never will forget when I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and I had individuals who sometimes we'd be the last, my little brother, along with one other young man, we'd be the last to leave the store. And I had a young man, uh, had a customer who came in one night, farmer. He walks in, we were getting ready to close, and he told us what he wanted, and I said, not a problem, we'll, we'll get it done for you. And he looked around and he said, a little too dark in here for me. I said, oh, I'm sorry about that. I said, but we can provide the product that you want. But he turned and walked away. Uh, so sometimes you can be in a situation where people are uncomfortable, okay, because of certain things. And the thing that I, I, I try to do now is look at, and, and I told my son one time, I said, you know, if you go back, son, and look at the Pullman car days, and you look at the, when, when we were there, and we were servicing everybody and doing everything we could to be the best that we could be. You had teachers from the South who were coming up, working during the summer. I said, you know, we have to be the best service component again that we can be. So when I built my store in, in uh, Sterling, Virginia, I did all of my languages. I did four languages, and I put it on every door of every office. So when individuals walked into the store, I wanted them to know that we're doing everything we can to make sure that we can meet your every need. If you look at the offices here, we're not going to assume that you speak English. And if you look at our website, we will tell you how many languages we have on staff. We will show you pictures of all of the individuals on staff so you can shop with confidence that we're going to be able to meet your needs if you speak a different language than us. And I wanted us to look like the international community that we are. So that was the other thing that was important, needing to make sure that we addressed every aspect of our business to make the customer feel comfortable to come and do business with us. We will provide great service, we will provide uh, individuals who speak their language, and we're going to make sure 
It's the best car buying experience they will ever have. And by doing that, that's what kind of helped us to bring those other brands along, which is the question you were asking me about. Why did we do that and how we did that? Certainly, certainly. You've built uh, this great automobile business and company. Uh, you eventually acquired these additional franchises um, over time, which now, if I'm, I'm trying to keep up with all of them, so we have Mini, BMW, uh, McLaren, Rolls-Royce, and Lamborghini. I hope I got that right. Right. We just <laughs> sold Harley. Okay. Uh, about, oh, God, almost a year ago, we sold okay. Harley. Uh, and, and you never rode a motorcycle while you owned it? No, I, I never rode a motorcycle. <laughs> My wife wouldn't allow that. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, we finally made a decision that that, that one didn't work for us. Yeah. And we let it go. And got sometimes it. those things happen. They do. They do. But along the way, you also got involved in some other uh, ventures. I understand you also dabbled in some real estate. Yes. Um, you know, my grandfather and my uncle, uh, who was the minister who raised us, said, you know, don't put all the eggs in one basket. And I had a neighbor who was the president of the America for Marriott Corporation. And every day, uh, every other day, I'd see Bob going out in the morning, going to Marriott, and coming back in the evening when I'd be pulling into the drive, he would be hit at home. And so he said to me one day, he said, I need to talk to you and Joyce. He says, you know, you guys uh, may want to look at hospitality. And I said, Bob, I said, no, I said, I got enough on my plate now trying to figure out how to, to be successful in the car business. And he said, well, it's just another widget, okay? He said, but it's selling and servicing people in a way that you make their experience the best that they, it can be and keep them coming back. And I said, well, if you can talk to Joyce and convince her to sit through the seminars and take a look at that. And she, he did. Joyce sat through some of those seminars. And being the lawyer that she is, she came back and she said, sweetheart, we may want to look at this. And, and we, I went and I sat through a couple of them and went back to Bob and I said, Bob, I said, you know, I think we're going to take a chance on this. I said, but now we have to have a great hotel now. And so he said, oh, no, not a problem. You will. <laughs> they were building a, a hotel out in Prince George's County, and which wasn't that far from us, about 23 miles. And they were looking for investors in the hotel. And they wanted to have a diversity, uh, diversity uh, persons in that particular unit. And we looked at it. We made a decision to uh, to invest in that one, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, we'll, we can wait till they, they stop. So they uh, found this hotel for us, and when they found the hotel, we looked at it, we invested in it. Best investment we made 
for the amount of money we put into it. We got all of our money back and then some. And when we got, when we sold the hotel, we sold the asset to Bob Johnson when he was getting ready to go public. And it allowed Bob to really go and go public. And it allowed us to have some resources that we then were able to reinvest. So when we reinvested, we bought, I think, three other hotels with the investment that we made in the first one. And once we got that done, and we actually had to do a little work on a couple of them, uh, we kept those for about three years. We sold those, reinvested again, and every time we do that, we add some. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think we're up to about mid-40s now. So that allowed us to, to kind of move into another arena. And I, I always say um, the majority of the hotels that we own right now, are, the majority of them are Marriott properties, but we have just about one of everything now and all of the brands. And it has worked out very well. And uh, Bill Marriott has been outstanding. And now Mr. Marriott is obviously a uh, customer of ours. He and his son, because uh, he's a great car collector. And he has, effects, has one of the largest car collections uh, in the country. And it's just it's been beautiful. So for that reason, we've been really, really lucky. And I love the hospitality business. So when I look back to those three things that my grandfather told me about, he said, son, make sure you can look at three areas of things that people have to have. They need a car, they need to be able to eat, they need to have a place to sleep. Yeah. So I hope he's looking down on us today and say, at least we were able to kind of touch each of those. Yeah. And we've been blessed enough to have uh, been successful in, in all three of them. I have a feeling that he's looking down with a big smile. Um, Let's pivot just for a second, and we'll conclude this interview soon. How did you and Joyce meet, and how important has family support been uh, in helping you achieve what you've achieved? Oh, gosh. Joyce, uh, it was a young lady who was in grad school with me in Michigan, who was one of Joyce's best friends, and they lived in Washington, D.C. So I was in D.C. visiting and met Joyce. And when I did, so I met Joyce through a friend mm -hmm. who was in grad school with me at Michigan, who lived in Washington, D.C. And as a result of that, um, she and I met, got married. We've been married now and together for about 22 years. Mm -hmm. And Joyce has just been a tremendous partner in that I couldn't have done this by myself. And when I look at the many nights that we spent strategizing on how to get something done and needing to respond very quickly to a particular situation, I realized at that time that the best way for me to get it done 
was to delegate certain things to her and I would do certain things. And I had a son that we brought up in the business. And as a result of that, it's been like a family affair and a support mechanism for each other to get us where we are today. Right, fantastic. Now, just a couple of other questions and we'll conclude here. If you could go back and offer advice to a 20 or 30 year old Tom Moorhead, what would that advice be? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things my wife said, sometimes you're a little too rigid. You feel like things have to go a certain way. And if I started all over again, perhaps I wouldn't be as rigid. And as she would say to me, I know you love Mr. Bradley, and I know you feel like his method was the best method. Uh, but obviously others have been successful and they didn't follow Mr. Bradley's uh, method or a blueprint. And if I had it to do all over again, perhaps I would probably be a bit more flexible. I used to have a lot of athletes who would come to me because they didn't see me as somebody wanting anything from them. And they would come in and they would talk to me about being successful and what could they do. And what I said to them, um, what I said to them uh, was, um, if you're gonna invest your money, you need to know about the business that you're investing in. And so many of those young men, they get a lot of money. The thing that I said to them was that I didn't mind working with them and helping them, uh, but I wanted them, if they were gonna invest their money, to really know what they were investing their money in. I would not want them to invest money based on Tom Moyer. And I just felt like they needed to know about the car business, the hotel business, if those were areas of their interest. Um, I had a young man and I, I have to give him a shout out and that was uh, Morris Chestnut. Morris is an actor who has been in probably 40 films. And Morris called me one day and said that he wanted to talk to me. And I said, okay. And Morris came to me and said, you know, I would like to get into a business that I can pass on to my kids. And acting is not one of those that I can pass on, uh, but I'd like to get into the car business. And I told Morris, you know, what I thought it would take. And I said the same thing to him. I said, I wouldn't want you to invest your money based on Tom Moorhead. If you lost your money, then I would feel really badly. But if you're really serious, I will help you get into dealer school. And I would help you to make sure that you're going to be successful if you choose to go into the car business. And he, to his, his, uh, his word, he said, well, let me call you. Uh, and I can call you tomorrow. What's a good time? I said, Marsh, call me at eight. And I have a couple of appointments and we'll go through it and I'll give you my impression. And in the course of doing that, he called the next morning, eight o'clock sharp. 
And by the time we got done, after about an hour, I said to him, I said, where are you? He said, I'm in California. I said, oh, Morris. I said, you know, we could have done this, you know, in the evening. He said, well, no, I have to be on the set at 6.30 every morning. So I get up, I go and work out, then clean up and make it to the set by 6.30. As a result of that, I said to him, I said, I'm going to do everything I can to help you to be successful in the car business. Mm -hmm. And I did that. Morris went through the school, did a really great job. He now has a couple of stores and dealerships out in California. And from time to time, he comes back to the store and he goes and works with my staff. And if he needs something, all of my staff know they stop and send it to him, talk to him, help him to resolve any problem that he may have so that he will be successful. I had another young lady who, um, her name is Pam uh, Rogers. She has a store that she just sold here recently. And she was in at a Chevrolet store in just outside of Metro Airport there in Detroit was wildly successful and she and I were in school together in Michigan and she left Michigan after she um, got an undergraduate degree and went to Duke to get a MBA mm. and I, I always tease her about leaving Michigan to go to Duke to get an MBA. She should have stayed in Michigan but Pam did really really well. Another young man that that I've been able to help. So that's a part of what Mr. Bradley talked to me about was paying it forward and paying that black tax. That is reaching back and helping others along the way to be able to achieve and be the best that they can be in this business. For a young person who doesn't already have a financial base today at 25, what advice would you offer them if they were trying to get into the car bit dealership ownership business? You know, and I use 25 as an age where, okay, presuming there are a number of steps they need to take. What, what would that advice be? Good question. We have in NAMADS what we call the Next Generation Program. When I was chairman of the association, the program that I started. And what we do there is we work with them to teach them the business. And we expose them to all of the manufacturers. So they would have an opportunity to one, in excuse me, interview and talk to uh, the manufacturers about uh, business opportunities. And if it is something that it's a financial commitment that's needed, then we want to make sure that we put them with the various financial institutions that can help them along the way. If it's a job that they need, we want to take them in our stores and teach them along the way the same way Mr. Bradley taught me. By allowing them to work for us and have us teach them, okay, it is my hope that we will then have more Tom Moorhead, Ed Fitzpatrick's, and, and others like me so that we don't have all of the headstone behind us. And that's what we're trying to do going forward into the future try to make sure we provide great role models to work with them, okay? Because I had to have great role models 
to help me along that along the way. So that's what I try and look at. So what's next on the horizon for you? And any closing remarks you want to share? Well, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of that now. And I'm getting that because uh, I'll be 77 in a few more months. Hmm. <laughs> you wear And I think for me, um, getting to uh, that milestone in life, I, I start telling people now that I think I'm, I'm at the after dinner drink stage of life. Mm. I got a little bit, I got a corner left in that glass. So uh, I'm going to do everything that I can to start working with some of uh, the historically black colleges and specifically some of the business schools. Um, and what I'm asking those of us who are now at that after dinner drink stage of life, we need to reach back and start doing whatever we can to help young folks come along. A word of advice to young people who would like to get started, whether it's this business or any other business, uh, the thing that I've always said to them is that in every business, there are certain percent guidelines for profitability. You need to learn every aspect of your job, but you also need to understand and know the percent guidelines for profitability. Now, we have been fortunate to be successful in the car business and in the hotel business, but there was one that I didn't make it in, and that was the, that was, uh, the restaurant business. And I didn't make it in the restaurant business because there were four of us, three young men, one of whom was uh, myself, from Monroe, Louisiana, and we had another friend out of Detroit. We went into the restaurant business in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the store, we, we, we built a Creole restaurant, and the store did really well in the beginning, and we had one of, our, one of us uh, whose parents had a barbecue place was actually the one that was running it. Well, when the business started out, we did so well that I said, gentlemen, we need to get somebody who really knows the restaurant business to make this a success. Because we could take this and franchise it. And the gentleman that was running it said, oh, no, no, I can do it. I can handle it. Well, when I started to look at it, our personnel cost was running 37% of sales. Well, the industry said I should have been at 18 to 22%. So you could obviously see we were out of line. And being out of line, we needed to bring it back in line in order to continue to be successful. But I had one vote out of four, and I got outvoted. So the lesson learned in that was I didn't want partners going forward into the future. <laughs> and if I was going to make it, I was going to make it based on Tom Moyer, okay? as opposed to having partners that I couldn't control the environment that I was in. So what I it will say is put yourself in a position that you learn every aspect. Like the day I walked into the parts department and she gave me that rag and told me to wipe down those shelves, I had to do that. When I worked on the service drive, uh, handling service customers who were coming in, 
and meeting all my colleagues from Michigan wanting to know what was wrong with Tom Moorhead, I had to take that step back. So I will say to young people who are coming along, don't be afraid of the hard task, okay? Be the best that you can be at whatever you try and do. And do what you do, do with your might. Things done by halves are never done right. And that's what my uncle used to always say to me. Be the best that you can be in every aspect of what you do. Things by, done by halves will never be right. And that for me was something I never forgot, okay? And I will say one other thing in closing, and that is uh, there are times when you need to do and improve your organization in the course of doing that, okay? There are a lot of great books out there. And if you select some of those that will help you to be the best that you can be in your chosen field, okay? You wanna always make sure that your employees hear the word from somebody other than you all the time. Because sometimes they may not wanna take those words from you, but as an old friend used to always say, if you bring somebody in from 20 miles away, he seems like an expert, he can say the same thing you've been saying, okay? but they will listen. So one of the things that I, I will say that really helped us was that we used to have every month a different book. And we used to take that book and I would take the chapters in the book. And in the old days, you could get cassettes. I knew my people didn't have enough time to read. So what I would do is I would take those cassettes and pass them out. So on their way to work or on their way home, I wanted them to play the cassette and the following morning, they could come back and talk about those cassettes in terms of tools for success. Yeah. So those tools for success helped us along the way to be where we are today. And that I would say to young people, find what is best for you that will help you be the best that you can be and reach back and help other young people and bring them along and make them better than you are and never be afraid to hire the best. I always wanted to hire people that were brighter than me, okay? They had to bring to the table something that was better than I could bring to the table. So always surround yourself with the best and the brightest you can be. Always hire the best and the brightest and you get what you pay for. Every time I start a business, I'm not looking to, to pay the least amount. I'm looking to pay for the best talent I can get because I want to win every time. Here, here. Uh, I love it. Tom, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for making the time to share such a rich and powerful story. Uh, you started out by talking to us about the early lessons that you learned about working hard as a young boy, the lessons from your uncle about business, 
focusing on things that people either need to eat, sleep, or cars, because those are things are <laughs> uh, going to need. You talked about your philosophy in business about, one, learning everything you can about the operation of your business so that you're never held hostage in a situation where has to leave. You talked about, as a leader, being willing to step in, roll up your sleeves, and get your hands dirty, clean the car. You have to. Have to. Have to. Uh, you've talked about not putting all of your eggs in one basket and important, but along the line, making sure if you do go into a business, you learn everything, uh, every aspect of the business, and more importantly, the profitability of what those benchmarks are. Uh, it's been so many nuggets shared that I, I could spend uh, several more minutes just recapping. My guest today has been Thomas Moorhead. My name is Lalu davis Yemitin, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. Well, thank you.